Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. We all have different passions, different interests, and a heart for different things. Jenny Davis has a beautiful heart. She's just returned from Togo in West Africa, where she served as a nurse. Her love for the poor is evident. She says this, My heart breaks daily for the tens of millions of people around the world who still live in poverty. In a world of injustice, where the abundant wealth we enjoy is unequally and unfairly distributed, where people don't have access to basic human needs, such as adequate food, clean water and basic health care. Two years ago, Jenny first volunteered as an ICU nurse for just two months with Mercy Ships, and she's just returned from another six weeks of service with them. The global charity provides free, high-quality surgical care for thousands who would otherwise go without. Their work is reflective of instructions in the New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So to talk about her faith, work in Africa, and her heart for the poor, Jenny Davis, welcome to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's great to meet you. Good to be here. Jenny, we all know about poverty. Millions are starving. We know the problem is growing, and we all talk about how sad it is. But we don't necessarily try to do something about it. Why have you decided to do something? My heart for the poor has obviously grown from my faith. Uh, as a Christian, I cannot see any other way to live. I, I believe we have an obligation, a commitment to anyone less fortunate than us. But I also believe we live in a country where we can take care of our poor, but there are countries out there where they just have no resources. They don't have the government, they don't have the infrastructure to take care of their poor. And while we can't all go to far-flung parts of the world, that has been something that I have been able to do, and that's where my heart is. Have you always had that, or was there a point at which that passion was ignited? It's been a more recent thing in my life, I have to say, and so has my growth in my Christian faith. It's yeah. been a more recent thing also, so I think the two have gone hand in hand. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, I have been a person who can't sit by and hear stories without responding, without um, the burden um, being on my heart, and it is an incredible burden sometimes. I, Like I said, my heart breaks every day. I can't think of these people without feeling the need to respond in some way. Why Mercy Ships? Why did you choose them? That's easy um, because <laughs> Mercy Ships offered me the opportunity to use the skills that I already have that I've developed over many, many years in a very meaningful and Christ-centered way. They offer the opportunity for me to go and just be a nurse and to care for the poorest of the poor. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take those skills that I have and really put them to use in a place that really needs them, where these people just don't have access to healthcare otherwise. Paint us a picture of the ship. Take us in there and I'd love tell us to. what it's like. I wish I could show it to yeah. you. Um, that's hard on radio. Um, I believe it's around about 150 metres long. 
I'm not real good on the um, nautical terms, but yes, I believe that's from bow to stern. Very good, yeah. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> Um, they like to try and teach us to be good sailors, but I'm still learning. The ship has eight decks. The hospital occupies deck three. Deck three is just above the water level. There are no portholes. There's no windows on deck three. The first windows come on deck four. The patients also don't have windows. They are down there on deck three in a very small area with a very low roof space. And the only way that they get to see the outside world and breathe fresh air is every afternoon at 2.30. We march them up to Deck 7, up all those flights of stairs. The ship houses up to 450 volunteer crew at any given time. Those volunteers can come from upward of 40 different countries at any given time, which I found quite incredible. It's an old ship? It is or an was old it's ship. former life? Yeah, it's, um, it was actually a Danish passenger ferry that used to cross the straits somewhere in the Scandinavian waters. Uh, so it was transformed basically into a hospital ship. And it moves from port to port? It does. Yeah, for um, how long? At each for 10 months at a time. Uh, each outreach averages on 10 months. Sometimes for different reasons that has to be cut short, whether it's for maintenance issues or whatever reason. And over the last 20 years, I believe that um, they've conducted 38 outreaches, so obviously some of those are shorter, um, in 10 West African countries. Now the Africa Mercy focuses on the countries of this particular part of West Africa, stretching from Benin up to Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, up in the north. And yeah. many of those countries are countries that have had years of civil war, so you can imagine the nature of those places. What was it like when you first went on your first trip? to be confronted with the poverty and the low levels of health care yeah. that these people yeah. know. Incredibly eye-opening for anybody to, to first step into that environment. On the ship itself, we're very protected. Um, we're very safe and secure, but we only have to step out onto the dock and into the port area um, to immediately be confronted with the incredible levels of poverty experienced in these countries in terms of health care, the first time around in Togo, I did have the opportunity to visit the local hospital, which is their government hospital, which is the hospital in the city. And that's the only option these people have. And But it's user pays. If you don't have money to pay for health care there, you just don't get it. And the conditions, I visited the children's ward um, on several evenings. And we just went to basically hang out with the kids, play, do crafts and colouring and things. And the conditions were absolutely appalling in the whole time that we were there and the times we visited, we never actually saw any healthcare personnel. There was not a nurse in sight. They only worked during the day. And during the night evenings, the patients are left to their own devices and they still have to pay. Some of them actually choose to leave for the evening because they feel they're paying, but they're not getting anything. So they may as well go home and come back the next day when the nurses are there. And your service is free. Totally and free. And high care and high quality absolutely. care. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. High quality. People are committed to delivering, to delivering really high quality care. It's not just a patch-up job. We are giving you know, state-of-the-art medical attention to these people. We hear about poverty, and yet it's so hard to grasp a sense of what it's really like. Mm. As someone who's seen it, how would you describe that to us? Devastating. It's dirty. It's run down. Um, I think it particularly hit me more so even than in Togo in Sierra Leone last year, a country that's still trying to 
recover from years of civil war. Now, they haven't been at war for a decade now, but they are yet to even remotely get back on their feet. That is a very broken country. There's no infrastructure, there's no good roads, there's no sewerage, there's just open drains lining the streets. You see too many children around on the streets during the day and you think, why aren't they in school? Mm. Um, You see too many of them working really hard in the marketplaces or just sitting with their mums in the markets where their mums are working to try and make a few dollars selling whatever they have. And it seems at times that they're all trying to sell the same little trinkets and you wonder how they actually make a living out of that. Uh, Especially in a war-torn country like that, you see a lot of the aftermath, the people missing limbs, the people who have been scarred dreadfully by burns inflicted on them by rebel groups. And there is just no escaping from it in places like that. On Open House, we're with Jenny Davis, just back from another spell with Mercy Ships. And yet, Jenny you are able to do something so significant so often for these people that goes to the core and cause of why they are in such poverty. Yeah, I think addressing the health needs of these people is vital to at any attempt to help to lift them out of poverty. It is elective surgery. So we can only take on and treat people that have conditions that fit with the specialties that we take care of on board. But having said that, the types of conditions that we treat, left untreated, will ultimately kill a lot of these people. Not all of the surgeries are life-saving, but they are still life-transforming. So you may have cataract surgery. that's not life-saving, but it's certainly life-transforming, as opposed to surgery for the giant um, facial and neck tumours that these people in this part of the world seem to develop, they are definitely life-saving because left untreated, that person will either suffocate as that tumour slowly over years occludes their airway or they will starve to death because they are unable to eat due to the size of the tumour taking up over their mouth. These are benign tumours. And... As my dear colleague, Gary Parker, who's the chief of surgery there on the ship, said to us this year, he said, in the West, a a diagnosis of a benign tumour is a good thing. You go, yay, great, Um, you can be cured. And we pick these things when they're the size of a pea and we do something about it. In West Africa, that diagnosis is not necessarily a good thing because all it means is it will still kill you, but it will just kill you slowly and painfully. How much do you feel that God was part of the work that you do there? Oh, God is everywhere with Mercy Ships. Um, it's just a very unique environment to work in. Most of the people who volunteer are Christians. There are some who aren't, sure. but they very quickly realize what kind of a place they've come to. And they don't come unknowingly, and they obviously can't help but be affected by that environment. God is in the ward in the kitchen, in you know, the galley, in the laundry. He's everywhere. And it's just an amazing and unique environment. The people that go there as volunteers, because they're all volunteers, they go there to serve and they go there to love on these people. And there's no other reason I don't think that they go there. That's certainly why I go there. Um, there's just an outpouring of love on these people. There are times when I sit there in the middle of the night on night shifts and it's quiet 
And you can see all the patients, they're all around you and they're sleeping away or they're mumbling and the kids are kind of crying out a little. But I just look up and I feel like they're in the corner and Jesus is there and he's just watching. And often and distinctively, miraculously. Uh, I have one particular story that happened um, when I was in Togo the first time around in 2010. And again, it was the middle of the night and we had a very small baby, um, very undernourished baby that we've been trying to feed up to make healthy for his surgery he needed a cleft lip and palate repair which is quite commonly done on the ship this little baby was only about three months old and for some reason in the middle of the night this baby's oxygen levels just started to plummet and fall and fall and we're the nurses we're ICU nurses but we just kept looking and why why is this happening to this child we did everything that we could we had to summon the anaesthetist on call because that's who responds to an emergency like that. They came down. We also called Dr. Gary because he's the surgeon. Together as a team, we watched this child deteriorating before our eyes and we knew we, as professionals that there was nothing to be done other than to what we call intubate this child and put a breathing tube down his throat and put him on a ventilator, on a life support machine. That we thought that was the only way we were going to save this child. And it had to be done quickly. My colleague and I, my friend Natalie, we, as ICU nurses, we launched into action because that's what we do. That's what we're good at. And we're busily drawing up drugs and getting equipment ready. And as we did that, we turned at one stage and just to see Dr. Gary standing quietly with his eyes closed, with his hand on the chest of this child and just praying while we were all busily running around. He prayed. And by the time we had the equipment ready and we turned back to do what we thought we had to do, that child's oxygen levels were climbing and climbing until they reached 100%, which is as good as you can get. And we hadn't intervened at all. God had intervened. And I felt at that time it was like the hand of God had reached down through this man's hand and just healed that child. And there was no other explanation for it. The, the skeptics say, oh, well, the kid was going to get better anyway. No, he wasn't. There was no other explanation. There was no medical explanation as to why that child improved like he did and then required less oxygen than he had previously and was comfortable and settled for the rest of the night. I know a lot of that <laughs> miraculous stuff happens there, yeah. perhaps proportionally more than you see in Australia. Mm. Why do you think that is? I think, Lee, because all developing countries, places where they don't have the resources that we have, they rely on God. They are dependent on God for everything. I think they are more open to the possibility of miracles, and we're just not open to that. If I suddenly, in my current workplace, turned around in an emergency and said, hang on, I'm just going to pray, hold off, I would get laughed at or told to get out of the way, and this is what we're doing. Whereas in that environment, that was a perfectly reasonable and acceptable thing to do, and it works. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's the openness um, to miraculous things happening. We don't have to depend on God all the time because we have, we think we have everything we need. So each time you've gone and come back, what does Australia and Australians look like to you with those new eyes, I yeah. guess, that you take yeah. back? Australia just looks wealthier and wealthier, I suppose, and say better and better, um, which it is. It's an awesome country and there's nowhere else I'd want to live. But it saddens me to think uh, how much we have 
and how little they have. And each time I come back, I think that weighs more heavily on my mind and on my heart. In Australia, five children out of every 1,000 that are born will die before they reach their fifth birthday. That is tragic. But in West Africa, 170 children out of every 1,000 will die before they reach their fifth birthday. Um, a woman in West Africa has a 1 in 16 chance of dying in pregnancy or childbirth compared to 1 in 13,500 in Australia. The statistics are just so ridiculously huge yes, <laughs> compared yeah. to here. We have 25 doctors for every 10,000 people in Australia. They have two. The numbers are just crazy and they get crazier. So, yeah, Australia looks great, but at the same time, Australia looks greedy and heartless at times. There are a lot of great people doing a lot of great things here, but I think we need to really step back and have a good hard look at ourselves sometimes to see how much more we could actually do if we really wanted to. If there are people with medical experience mm. and expertise mm. who've had their consciences pricked by that, what would you say to them about considering doing what you've done? I'd say go. I'd say jump on the website and check it out and just put it out there what your experience is. And I would say that not just to medical people, there are positions on that ship for everybody, and I mean everybody, from the captain, you know, waiting through the engineers, the galley staff, the laundry staff, the cleaners, there's electricians, there's carpenters, there's school teachers, there is a school on board for the crew uh, members, for the long term crew members, children. So it's an international school, and there's 50 children in school from K to 12 at any given time. School, so school teachers, they're always after school teachers. You could literally apply with any skill that you have and there would be a spot for you. And I would say to anyone, give it a go because it will change your life and you will never look at the world the same way ever yes. again. The transformation is two ways. Mm -hmm. So to finish, is there one transformative story that you can particularly relate to us Certainly. that encompasses <laughs> the need for this and yeah, um, the joy of this really? Mm. One gentleman comes to mind, a very dear, sweet man. His name is Mustafa. He was in Sierra Leone last year. He came from a village far, far away from the city. And he came to us after having been afflicted as a child at age five with a condition called Noma. Noma is a condition that is endemic to this part of West Africa and also to other parts of the developing world, but it seems particularly to be rife in West Africa. It's literally a flesh-eating disease. We bandy that term around a lot here, yes. but this is definitely what it is, that takes over, and usually in small children, once they've, um, once they've suffered another minor illness, the normal bacteria in their mouth just starts literally to eat away around their mouth, their face, their nose, whatever. So we have people come to us with half their face eaten away, their nose missing, etc. This condition is easily curable with penicillin for the want of a bit of penicillin. Most people who develop Noma actually die from it. But the 20% that survive only survive just because the disease runs its natural course. And they're just the lucky ones who've actually survived, but they're left with terrible deformities. So Mustafa came to us in Sierra Leone last year. He had no nose and no top lip. So that whole part of his face was just a hole. We were able to do some incredible reconstructive surgery for him. And 
build him a new upper lip and nose and it was a long and painful process but this is a man who'd been outcast from his society for his whole life really since the age of five he was different and outcast and this is a part of the world that believe a lot in um, voodoo um, and witchcraft and they believe that people with deformities like that are actually cursed so the villagers really just don't want to have anything to do with them. So they are literally outcasts. If you're outcast from your society like that, you don't have an education. You don't have any way of making a living. And you're literally reduced to begging uh, for any kind of food and sustenance. Mustafa was with us for many, many weeks because this type of surgery he needed, needed periods of weeks in between stages. I was there for the whole time he was there. I had the privilege of actually going into the operating theatre and watching some of his surgery. And on the day he went for his final surgery and came back to the ward. And then I had the privilege again of looking after him. He came back to the ward. He opened his eyes. The first thing he did was say the word glass and he meant mirror. And he just wanted to see his face. And we handed him the mirror. And if you could just see the smile on his face... Your life would never be the same again either. He was completely joyful and grateful and his life was transformed. He then knew he could go back to his home and he could hold his head high and say, I just look like everybody else now and I have a chance at a normal life. So stories like that are frequent. They are daily occurrences. This is one and I have so many and each one of them just touches your heart so deeply and they are so brave and resilient, these people. Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> they are tough cookies. I'm sure they are. Yeah. <clears throat> I've loved this conversation and uh, I'm truly inspired by your work. I'm sure others, many others around Australia and beyond. Uh, and we'll post the details of Mercy Ships and a picture of the ship on our Open House Community Facebook page. Jenny Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be here. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.